You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. are now entering the Sapphire Planet. You are now in the Sapphire Planet. From very early in the production, Kubrick decided that he wanted the film to be a primarily nonverbal experience that did not rely on the traditional techniques of narrative cinema in which music would play a vital role in evoking particular moods. About half the music in the film appears either before the first line of dialogue or after the final line. Almost no music is heard during any scenes with dialogue. The film is notable for its innovative use of classical music taken from existing commercial recordings. Most feature films then and now are typically accompanied by elaborate film scores or songs written specifically for them by professional composers. In the early stages of production, Kubrick had actually commissioned a score for 2001 from Hollywood composer Alex North, who had written the score for Spartacus and also worked on Dr. Strangelove. However, during post-production, Kubrick chose to abandon North's music in favor of the now familiar classical pieces he had earlier chosen as guide tracks for the soundtrack. North did not know the abandonment of the score until after he saw the film's premiere screening. Oops. Also engaged to score the film was composer Frank Cordell. Cordell stated in an interview that the score would primarily consist of arrangement of Gustav Mahler works. This score remains unreleased. Like Norse score, Cordell's work was recorded at the now demolished Anvil Denim Studios. 2001 is particularly remembered for using pieces of John Strauss's best-known waltz, The Blue Danube, during the extended space station docking and lunar landing sequences. This is the result of the association that Kubrick made between the spinning motion of the satellites and the dancers of the waltzes. It also makes use of the opening from Richard Strauss's tone poem, Also Sprach Zarathustra, performed by the Vienna Philharmonic, conducted by Herbert von Karjan. 
The use of Strauss's Zarathustra may be a reference to the theme of mankind's eventual replacement by supermen in Nietzsche's work, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Gayen's Adagio from Aran Kachachurian's Gagne Ballet Suite is heard during the sections that introduce Bowman and Poole aboard the, dis aboard the Discovery, conveying a somewhat lonely and mournful quality. In addition to the majestic yet fairly traditional composition by the two Strausses and Kachaturian, Kubrick used four highly modernistic compositions by Jorge Ligeti that employ micropolyphony, the use of sustained distant chords that sit shift slowly. This technique was pioneered in Atmospheres, the only Ligeti piece heard in its entirety in the film. Ligeti admired Kubrick's film, but in addition to being irritated by Kubrick's failure to obtain permission directly from him, he was offended that his music was used in a film soundtrack shared by composers John Strauss and Richard Strauss. Other music used is Ligeti's Lux Aeterna, the second movement of his Requiem, an electronically altered form of his adventures, the last of which was also used without Ligeti's permission and is not listed on the film's credits. Huh. Hal's version of the popular song Daisy Bell, referred to by Hal as Daisy in the film, was inspired by a computer synthesized arrangement by Mac Matthews, which Arthur C. Clarke had heard in 1962 at the Bell Laboratories, Murray Hill facility when he was, coincidentally, visiting friend and colleague John R. Pierce. At that time, a speech synthesis demonstration was being performed by physicist John Larry Keller Jr. by using an IBM 704 computer to synthesize speech. Kelly's voice recorder synthesizer, Vocorder, recreated the song Daisy Bill, Bicycle Built for Two. Max Matthews provided the musical accompaniment. Arthur C. Clarke was so impressed that he later used it in the screenplay and novel. Many non-English language versions of the film do not use the song Daisy. In the French soundtrack, Hal sings the French folk song A Claire de la Lune while being disconnected. In the German version, Hal sings the children's song Hoshkin Klein or Little Johnny. And in the Italian version, Hal sings Gyro Gyro Tondo or Ring a Ring a Roses. The recording of British light music composer Sidney Torch's Offbeat Moods Part 1 was chosen by Kubrick as the theme for the fictitious BBC news program, The World Tonight, as seen aboard the Discovery. On June 25, 2010, a version of the film specially remastered by Warner Brothers without the music soundtrack 
opened the 350th anniversary celebration of the Royal Society at Soundbank Center in cooperation with the British Film Institute. The score was played live by the Philharmonic Orchestra and Choir. This has become a recurring event at the South Bank Center's Royal Festival Hall with repeat performances in 2011 and on October 2nd, 2016. These latter two performances were played by the London Philharmonic Orchestra and sung by the Philharmonia Choir, the latter as part of a more general program of similar events entitled Film Scores Live. On June 14, 2013, a repeat presentation of the film, accompanied by live orchestra and choir, was performed at Symphony Hall in Birmingham, again accompanied by the Philharmonia Orchestra, conducted by Benjamin Walfish, together with the choir Ex Cathedra. A presentation of the film, accompanied by live orchestra and choir, pre premiered in the United States on August 18th, 2015 at the Hollywood Bowl in Hollywood, California, accompanied by the Los Angeles Philharmonic, conducted by Brad Lubman, together with the choir Los Angeles Master Chorale. Two thousand and one contains a famous example of a match cut, a type of cut in which two shots are matched by action or subject matter. After an ape discovers the use of bones as tools, he throws one triumphantly into the air. As the bone spins in the air, the film cuts to an orbiting satellite, marking the end of the prologue. The match cut draws a connection between the two objects as examples of primitive and advanced tools, respectively, and demonstrates humanity's technological process since the time of the apes. A version of the film edited before was publicly screened included a painting class on the lunar base that included Kubrick's daughters, additional scenes of life on the base, and Floyd buying a ba bush baby from a department store via video phone for his daughter. A 10-minute black and white opening sequence featuring interviews with actual scientists including Freeman Dyson discussing off-life, off-earth life was removed after an early screening for MGM executives. The text survives in the book Making of Kubrick's 2001 by Jerome Angel. Kubrick removed a further 19 minutes of footage following the world premiere on April 2, 1968. These include scenes revealing details about life on Discovery, additional spacewalks, astronaut Bowman retrieving a spare part from an octagonal corridor, elements from the pool murder sequence including spacewalking preparation, and Hal turning off radio contact with Poole, and a close-up of Bowman picking up a slipper during his walk in the alien room. Egil describes the scene's cut as comprising dawn of man Orion pool exercising in the centrifuge and pool's pod exiting from the discovery. Kubrick's rationale for editing the film was to tighten the narrative. Reviews suggested the film suffered from its departure from traditional cinematic storytelling. Regarding the cuts, Kubrick stated, I didn't believe that the trims made a critical difference. 
The people who like it, like it no matter what its length, and the same holds true for the people who hate it. As was typical of most films of the era, at least both as a roadshow in Cinerama format in the case of 2001, and a general release in 70 millimeter in the case of, also in the case of 2001. The entrance music, intermission music, and intermission altogether, and post-credit exit music were cut from most prints of the latter version, although these have been restored to most DVD releases. According to Kubrick's brother-in-law, Jan Harlan, the director was adamant the trims were never to be seen and that he burned the negatives, which he had kept in his garage shortly before his death. This was confirmed by Kubrick's assistant, Leon Vitali. I'll tell you right now, okay, on Clockwork Orange, The Shining, Barry Lyndon, some little parts in 2001, we had thousands of cans of negatives, outtakes, and print, which had been stored in an area at the house where he, we worked out of, which he personally supervised the loading of it into a truck, and I went down to a big industrial waste lot and burned it. That's what he wanted. In December 2010, Douglas Trumbull announced that Warner Brothers had located 17 minutes of lost footage from the post-premiere cuts, perfectly preserved, in a Kansas salt mine vault. No plans have yet to been announced for what to be used with that footage. The film's world premiere was on April 2, 1968, at the Uptown Theater in Washington, D.C. It opened two days later at the Warner Cinerama Theater in Hollywood and Lowe's Capitol in New York. Kubrick then deleted 19 minutes of footage from the film before its general release in five other U.S. cities on April 10, 1968, and internationally in five cities the following day, where it was shown in 70-millimeter format, used a six-track stereomagnetic soundtrack, and projected the 2.21 to 1 aspect ratio. The general release of the film as 35-millimeter anamorphic format took place in the autumn of 1968 and used either a four-track magnetic stereo soundtrack or an optical mono-aural soundtrack. The original 70 millimeter releases, like many Super Panavision 70 films of the era, such as Grand Prix, was advertised as being in Cinerama, in cinemas equipped with special projection optics and a deeply curved screen. In standard cinemas, the film was identified as a 70 millimeter production. The original release of 2001 A Space Odyssey in 70 millimeter Cinerama with a six track sound played continually for more than a year in several venues and 103 weeks in Los Angeles. The following year, 2001 was appointed by the United States Department of State Committee to be an American entry at the 6th Moscow International Film Festival. The film was re-released in 1974, 77, and again in 1980. Once 2001, the film's time set arrived, a restoration of the 70 millimeter version was screened at the Ebert's Overlooked Film Festival 
And the production was also reissued to selected film houses in North America, Europe, and Asia. The film earned 8.5 million in theatrical gross rentals from roadshow engagements throughout 1968, contributing North American rentals of 16.4 million and worldwide rentals of 21.9 million during its original release. Reissues have brought its culminative exhi exhibition gross to 56.9 million in North America and over 190 million worldwide. Upon release, 2001 polarized critical opinion, receiving both ecstatic praise and vehement derision. Some critics viewed the original 161-minute cut shown at premieres in Washington, D.C., New York, and Los Angeles, while others saw the 19-minute shorter general release versions that was in theaters from April 10, 1968 onwards. The New Yorker said it was some kind of great film and unforgettably endeavor. The film is hypnotically entertaining and it's funny with, at, without once being gaggy, but it's also rather harrowing. The uh, Los Angeles Times opinion that it was the picture that science fiction fans of every age and in every corner of the world have prayed that the industry might someday give them. It is the ultimate statement in the science fiction film an awesome realization of spatial future. It is a milestone, a landmark for space mark in the art of film. Since its premiere in 1968, the film 2001 A Space Odyssey has been analyzed and interpreted by numerous people ranging from professional movie critics to amateur writers and science fiction fans. The director of the film, Stanley Kubrick, and the writer, Arthur C. Clarke, wanted to leave the film open to philosophical and allegorical interpretation, purposely presenting the final sequence of the film without the underlying thread being apparent a concept illustrated by the final frame of the film which contains the image of the embryonic star child. Kubrick encouraged people to explore their own interpretations of the film and refused to offer an explanation of what really happened in the movie, preferring instead to let audiences embrace their own ideas and theories. In a 1968 interview with Playboy magazine, Kubrick stated, you're free to speculate as you wish about the philosophical and allegorical meaning of the film, and such speculation is one indication that it has succeeded in gripping the audience at a deep level. But I don't want to spell out a verbal roadmap for 2001 that every viewer will feel obligated to pursue or else fear he's missed the point. Neither of the two creators equated openness to interpretation with meaninglessness. Although it might seem that Clark implied as much when he stated shortly after the film's release, if anyone understands it on the first viewing, we failed our, in our intention. When told of the comment, Kubrick said, I believe he made the comment facetiously. The very nature of the visual experience in 2001 is to give the viewer an instantaneous visceral reaction that does not and should not require further amplification. When told that Kubrick had 
called his comment facetious, Clark responded, I still stand by this remark, which does not mean that one can't enjoy the movie completely the first time around. What I meant was, of course, that being we were dealing with the mystery of the universe and with powers and forces greater than man's comprehension, then by definition they could not be totally understandable. Yet there is at least one logical structure, and sometimes more than one, behind everything that happens on the screen in 2001, and the ending does not consist of random enigmas, some critics to the contrary. In subsequent discussions of the film with Joseph Glemis, Kubrick said his main aim was to avoid intellectual verbalization and reach the viewer's subconsciousness. He said he did not deliberately strive for ambiguity, that it was simply an inevitable outcome of making the film nonverbal. Although he acknowledged that his ambiguity was an invaluable asset to the film, he was willing then to give a fairly straightforward explanation of the plot on which he called the simplest level, but unwilling to discuss the metaphysical interpretation of the film, which he felt should be left up to the individual viewer. Arthur C. Clarke's novel of the same name was developed simultaneously with the film, though published after the film's release. It seems to explain the ending of the film more clearly. Clark's novel explicitly identifies the monolith as a tool created by an alien race that has been through many stages of evolution, moving from organic forms through biomechanics and finally has achieved a state of pure energy. The book explains the monolith more specifically than the movie depicting it as a gateway or portal to allow travel to other parts of the galaxy. It depicts Bowman traveling through some kind of interstellar switching station, which the book refers to as Grand Central, in which travelers go into the central hub, then are routed to the individual destinations. The book also depicts a crucial utterance by Bowman when he enters the portal via the monolith. His last statement is, it's full of stars. This statement is not shown in the movie, but becomes crucial in the film's sequel, 2010, The Year We Make Contact. The book reveals that these aliens travel the cosmos, assisting lesser species to take the evolutionary steps Bowman explores the hotel room methodically and deduces that it's a kind of zoo created by aliens, fabricated from information derived from the intercepted television transmissions from Earth, in which he is being studied by the invisible alien entities. He examines some food items provided for him and notes that they are edible, yet clearly not made of any familiar substance from Earth. Kubrick's film leaves all this unstated. Physicist Freeman Dyson urged those baffled by the film to read Clark's novel. He said, After seeing Space Odyssey, I read Arthur Clark's book. I found the book gripping and intellectually satisfying, full of the tension and clarity which the movie lacks. All the parts of the movie that are vague and unintelligible, especially the beginning and the end, become clear and convincing in the book. 
So I recommend to my middle-aged friends who find the movie bewildering that they should read the book their teenage kids don't need to. Clark himself used to recommend reading the book saying, I always used to tell people, read the book, see the film, and repeat the dose as often as necessary. Although as his biographer Neil McAlear points out, he was promoting sales of his book at the time. Elsewhere, he said, you would find my interpretation in the novel. It's not necessarily Kubrick's, nor is his necessarily the right one, whatever that means. Some film critics note that the novel differs in many key respects from the film and as such perhaps should not be regarded as the skeleton key to unlock it. In Stanley Kubrick, a biography, the author was inclined to note creative differences leading to a separation of meaning of book and film. The film took on its own life as it was being made and Clark became increasingly irrelevant. Kubrick could probably have shot 2001 from a treatment since most of what Clark wrote, in particular some windy voiceovers, which explain the level of intelligence reached by the ape men, the geological state of the world at the dawn of man, the problems of life on the discovery, and much more, was discarded during the last days of editing, along with the explanations of Hal's breakdown. There was also religious interpretations for 2001. In an interview for Rolling Stone magazine, Kubrick said, on the deepest psychological level, the film's plot symbolizes the search for God, and it finally postulates what is a little less than a scientific definition of God. The film revolves around this metaphysical conception that, and the, the realistic hardware and the documentary feelings about everything were necessary in order to undermine your built-in resistance to the poetical concept. When asked in, when they asked Kubrick in an interview with Playboy magazine, if 2001 A Space Odyssey was a religious film, Kubrick elaborated by saying, I will say that God concept is at the heart of 2001, but not any traditional anthropomorphic image of God. I don't believe in any of Earth's monotheistic religions, but I do believe that one can construct an intriguing scientific definition of God once you accept the fact that there are approximately 100 billion stars in our galaxy alone, that each star is a life-giving sun, and that there are approximately 100 billion galaxies in just the visible universe. Given a planet in a stable orbit, not too hot, not too cold, and given a few billion years of chance chemical reactions created by the interaction of the sun's energy on the planet's chemicals, it's fairly certain that life in one form or another will eventually emerge. It's reasonable to assume that there must be, in fact, countless billions of such planets where biological life has arisen and the odds of some proportion of such life-developing intelligence are high. Now, the sun is by no means an old star and its planets are mere children in cosmic age, 
So it seems likely there are billions of planets in the universe, not only where intelligent life is on a lower scale than man, but other billions where it is approximately equal and others still where it is hundreds of thousands of millions of years in advance of us. When you think of the giant technological strides that man has made in a few millennia, less than a microsecond in the chronologically, chronology of the universe, can you imagine the evolutionary development that much older life forms have taken? They may have progressed from biological species, which are fragile shells for the mind at best, into immortal machine entities, and then, over innumerable eons, they could emerge from the chrysalis of matter, transformed into beings of pure energy and spirit. Their potentialities would be limitless and their intelligence ungraspable by humans. In the same interview, he also blames the poor critical reaction to 2001 as follows. Perhaps there is a certain element of the lumpen latiri that is so dogmatic, dogmatically atheist and materialist and earthbound that it finds the grandeur of space and the myriad mysteries of cosmic intelligence anathema. Now there are also allegorical interpretations. The film has been seen by many people not only as a literal story about evolution and space adventures, but as an allegorical representation of aspects and philosophical, philosophical, religious, or literary concepts. The Nietzsche allegory, allegory. Frederick Nietzsche, philosophical tract, thus spoke Zarathustra about the potential of mankind is directly for, referred by the use of Richard Strauss's musical piece of the same name. Nietzsche writes that man is the bridge between the apes and the ubermensch. In an interview with the New York Times, Kubrick gave credence to the interpretations of 2001 based on Zarathustra when he said, somebody said man is the missing link between primitive apes and civilized human beings. You might say that is inherent in the story too. We are semi-civilized, capable of cooperation and affection, but needing some sort of transfiguration into a higher form of life. Man is really in a very unstable condition. Moreover, the chapter in the chapter of the three metamorphoses, metamorphoses Nietzsche identifies the child as the last step before the Uberman, after the camel and the lion, lending further support to the interpretation in light of a star child who appears in the final scenes of the movie. In Birth of Tragedy, in which Nietzsche refers to the human conflict between the Pollyan Apolloian and Dionysian modes of being. The Apolloian side of man is rational, scientific, sober, and self-controlled. For Nietzsche, a purely Apollonian mode of existence is problematic, 
since it undercuts the instinctual side of man. The Apollonian man lacks a sense of wholeness, immediacy, and primal joy. It is not good for a culture to be either wholly Apollonian or Diocian. While the world of the apes at the beginning of the movie 2001 is Dioncian, the world of travel to the moon is wholly Apollonian, and Hal is entirely a Apollonian entity. Kubrick's film came out just a year before the Woodstock Rock Festival, a wholly Dioncian affair. It is argued that David Bowman in his transformation has regained his Dioncian side. The conflict between humanity's internal Dionysius and Apollo has been used as a lens through which to view many other of Kubrick's films, especially Clockwork Orange, Dr. Strangelove, Lolita, and Eyes Wide Shut. Then there's the conception allegory. 2001 has been described as an allegory of human conception, birth, and death. In part, this can be seen through the final moments of the film, which are defined by the image of the star child in an in utero fetus that draws on the work of Lenart Nilsson. The star child signifies a great new beginning and is depicted naked and ungirded but with his eyes wide open. Some see the parallels between the spaceship's journey and the physical act of conception. We have the long, bulb-headed spaceship as a sperm and the destination planet Jupiter, or the monolith floating near it, as the egg, and the meeting the two as the trigger for the growth of a new race of man known as the Star Child. The lengthy pyrotechnic light show witnessed by David Bowman, which has puzzled many reviewers, is seen as Kubrick's attempt to visually depicting the moment of conception where the star child comes into being. Taking the allegory further, it is argued that the final scenes in which Bowman appears to be to see a rapidly aging version of himself through a time warp is actually Bowman witnessing the withering and death of his own species. The old race of man is about to be replaced by the star child, which was conceived by the meeting of the spaceship and Jupiter. Also sees an irony in the man as creator of Hal, on the brink of being usurped by his own creation. By destroying Hal, man symbolically rejects his role as creator and steps back from the brink of his own destruction. Similarly, similarly, in the book Making of Kubrick's 2001, it put forward the interpretation that Discovery One represents both a body with a vertebrae and a sperm cell, with Bowman being the life in the cell which is passed on. In this interpretation, Jupiter represents both a female and an oval. Now on to the monolith. 
As with many elements of the film, the iconic monolith has been subject to countless interpretations, including religious alchemy, historical and evolutionary. To some extent, the very way in which it appears and is presented allows the viewer to project onto it all manners of ideas relating to the film. The monolith in the movie seems to represent and even trigger epic transitions in the history of human evolution. Evolution of man from ape-like beings to civilized people, hence the odyssey of mankind. In one biography of Kubrick notes that for many Clark novels, for many, Clark's novel is the key to understanding the monolith. Similarly, it is observed that the monolith has a very simple explanation in Clark's novel, though later asserts that even the novel does not fully explain the ending. Rolling Stone magazine sees the film as a four-movement symphony, its story told with deliberate realism. It believes that what structurally unites all four episodes of the film is the monolith, the film's largest and most unresolvable enigma. Each time the monolith is shown, man transcends to a different level of cognition, linking the primeval, futuristic, and mystic segments of the film. The Rolling Stone Review notes that a parallelism between the monolith's first appearance in which tool usage is imparted to the apes, and the completion of another evolution in the fourth and final encounter with the monolith. In a similar vein, one reviewer says, the cynical evolution from ape to man, to spaceman, to angel star child Superman is complete. The monolith appears four times in 2001, A Space Odyssey. On the African savanna, on the moon, in space orbiting Jupiter, and near Bowman's bed before his transformation. After the first encounter with the monolith, we see the leader of the apes have a quick flashback to the monolith, after which he picks up a bone and uses it to smash other bones. Its usage as a weapon enables his tribe to defeat the other tribe of apes, occupying the waterhole who have not learned how to use bones as weapons. After this victory, the ape leader throws his bone into the air, which the scene shifts to an orbiting weapons four million years later, implying that the discovery of the bone as a weapon inaugurated human evolution, hence the much more advanced orbiting weapon four million years later. The first and second encounters of humanity with the monolith have visual elements in common. Both apes and then later astronauts touch the monolith gingerly with their hands, and both sequences conclude with near-identical images of the sun appearing directly over the monolith, the first with a crescent moon adjacent to it in the sky, the second with a near-identical crescent Earth in the same position, both echoing the Sun-Earth-Moon alignment seen in the very beginning of the film. The second encounter also suggests the triggering of the monolith's radio signal to Jupiter by the presence of humans, echoing the premise of Clark's source of the story, the Sentinel. 
in the most literal, literal narrative sense as found in the concurrently written novel. The monolith is a tool, an artifact of an alien civilization. It comes in many sizes and peers in many places, always in the purpose of advancing intelligent life. Arthur C. Clarke has referred to it as the alien Swiss army knife, or as a Haywood Floyd speculates in 2010, an emissary for an intelligence beyond ours, a shape of some kind for something that has no shape. The fact that the first tool used by the proto-humans is a weapon to commit murder is only one of the challenging evolutionary and philosophic questions posed by the film. The tools linked to the present day is made by the famous graphic match from the bone tool flying in the air to a weapon orbiting the Earth. At the time of the movie's making, the space race was in full swing and the use of space and technology for war destruction and destruction was seen as a great challenge of the future. But the use of tools was also allowed mankind to survive and flourish over the next four million years. At which point the monolith makes its second appearance, this time on the moon. Upon excavation after remaining buried beneath the lunar surface for four million years, the monolith is examined by humans for the first time and it emits a powerful radio signal, a target which becomes Discovery One's mission. In reading Clark's comments, or even Kubrick's comments, this is the most straightforward of the monolith appearances. It is calling home to say in effect, they are here. Some species visited long ago not only evolved intelligence, but intelligence sufficient to achieve space travel. Humanity has left its cradle and is ready for the next step. This is the point of connection with Clark's earlier short story, The Sentinel, originally cited as the basis for the entire film. The third time we see a monolith marks the beginning of the film's most cryptic and psychedelic sequence. Interpretations of the last two monoliths' appearances are varied as the film's viewers. Is it a stargate, some giant cosmic router or transporter? Are all of these visions happening inside Bowman's mind? And why does he wind up in some cosmic hotel suite at the end of it? According to the book Hollyworld, the path beyond the infinite introduces by the vertical alignment of the planets and moons with the perpendicular monolith forming a cross as if the astronaut is about to become a new savior. Bowman lives out his years alone in a neoclassical room brightly lit from underneath that evokes the Age of Enlightenment, decorated with classical art. As Bowman's life quickly passes in this neoclassical room, the monolith makes its final appearance, standing at the foot of his bed as he approaches death. He raises a finger towards the monolith, a gesture that alludes to Michelangelo painting the creation of Adam, with the monolith representing God. The monolith is the subject of the film's final line of dialogue, spoken at the end of the Jupiter mission segment. Its origin and purpose still a total mystery. Reviewers have noted that the monolith is the main element of mystery in the film, writing, the shock of the monolith's straight edges and square corners 
among the weathered rocks and describing the apes war warily circling it as prefiguring man's reaching for the stars. It is suggested that the final line relates to how the film should be approached as a whole, noting, the line appends not merely the discovery of the monolith on the moon, but to our understanding of the film in the light of ultimate questions it raises about the mystery of the universe. One author has claimed that the monolith is Kubrick's representation of the cinema screen itself. It is a cinematic conceit for turn of the monolith on its side and one has the letterbox of the cinemascope screen, the black rectangle on which the star child appears, as does the entirety of Kubrick's film. Now we've come to how. The HAL 9000 has been compared to a Frankenstein monster. HAL is an artificial intelligence, a sentient synthetic life form. HAL's very existence is an abomination, much like Frankenstein's monster. While perhaps not overtly monstrous, HAL's true character is hinted at by his physical deformity. Like a cyclops, he, replies, he relies upon a single eye, examples of which are installed throughout the ship. The eye's warped wide-angle point of view is shown several times, notably in the drawings of hibernating astronauts, all of whom Hal will later murder. Kubrick underscores the Frankenstein connection with a scene that virtually reproduces the style and content of a scene from James Whale's 1931 Frankenstein. The scene in which Frankenstein's monster is first shown on the loose is borrowed to depict the first murder of, by Hal of a member of the Discovery One's crew, an empty pod under Hal's control, extends its arms and hands and goes on a rampage directed towards astronaut pool. In each case, it is the first time the truly odi odious nature of the monster can be recognized as such and only appears about halfway through the film. Clark has suggested in interviews his original novel and in a rough draft of the shooting script that Howe's orders to lie to the astronauts, more specifically concealing the true nature of the mission, drove him insane. The novel does include the phrase, he, who is Hal, had been living a lie, a difficult situation for an ND program to be as reliable as possible, or as desirable given his program to only win 50% of the time at chess in order for the human astronauts to feel competitive. Clark also gives an explanation for the ill effects Hal being ordered to lie in computer terms as well as psychological terms stating Hal was caught in a no Mobius feedback loop. While the film remains ambiguous, one can see evidence in the film that since Hal was instructed to deceive the mission astronauts as to the actual nature of the mission, and that the deception opens a Pandora's box of possibilities, 
During a game of chess, although easily victorious over Frank Poole, Hal makes a subtle mistake in the use of descriptive notation to describe a move and when describing a forced mate, fails to mention moves that Poole could make to de delay defeat. Poole is seen to be mouthing his moves to himself during the game and is later revealed that Hal can lip read. Hal's con conversation with Dave Bowman just before the diagnostic error of the AE-35 unit communicates with Earth is almost a paranoid question. Your journey is now ending. the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.